BWI Daily Edition post-free agency in the NFL. We're going to be getting to Chris Godwin in just a second. But, Nate, did you uh, did you get any max contract yesterday, start of the new league year? Uh, I did not. I, I did grill. I went outside <laughs> and I grilled. Well, that's... That, felt, that felt like a million bucks. Well, good, good. It was beautiful yesterday in State College. And, of course, as a follow-up today, it's cloudy and rainy so that's how that's yeah, how course. state college works uh yeah yeah <laughs> bwi daily edition i'm your host thomas frank Carr. it's thursday as of recording if you're watching this on a saturday then it's saturday for you but thursday is our mailbag show but there's so much thing there's so many things that happened over the last 24 yeah. hours that we've got to get to some of those things before we get to your questions and of course if you're a blue white illustrated premium subscriber there's always the bat signal that goes out on the premium message board. I get to as many of those as we can that fit into the show. You get first priority there. And, of course, at Thomas Frank Carr on Twitter. I put that out on Wednesday night. So if you got a question there, you can always get one in for the show as well. It happens every Wednesday. And this is as long as there's uh, we're going to do this show on, Wednesday, on, on Thursdays, we're going to have this mailbag. We're going to have a mailbag for the rest of forever because I, I love this show. This is, I've had some of the best conversations with you when we get insightful thoughts from the audience. So that is going to continue. And Nate, thanks for always doing this. Great show. I, I mean, I intend to do this until I die. So <laughs> in like 120 years, I'm assuming medical advances. It's going to be great. Yeah. And I, so I have to push back on the idea of being 120 as well in your mind, because people are thinking like, why would I want to want to look like the Crypt Keeper? And I'm like, I expect to look like I'm 30 until yeah. I'm about 63 because of modern medicine. So I'm that's still a, 21 as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, so I've always been in my 30s. Like my mental age has always been in my 30s. So I am now my age, which is it's okay. nice. It, it's like putting on a pair of pants that fit. It's nice. Yeah, you caught up. It's good. <laughs> I finally caught up. Uh, so some of the information, some of the big news. We'll start with the biggest news that came out uh, yesterday, which is that athletic director for Penn State. And I don't know her official title it's something fancy she is retired yeah 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 yep so sandy barber is retiring we're gonna get to some of that in the mailbag but let's start with and this is why i don't really know where to start with this so where do you want to start with the sandy barber conversation Nate? um you know I, I think it's i think it's a little early to to look at who's next necessarily i mean i just okay. i think that 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 will play itself out. I think that we have some ideas about what Penn State maybe needs to do, like things that are on the checklist for it to, you know, maybe change and modernize itself a little bit. I mean, certainly the athletic department itself under Sandy Barber's direction has become modernized. Uh, the the expansion of staff, the, the positions that she has filled, it is, it is, on par with it more closely resembles the way that an athletic department of Penn State size should look. Uh, however, you know, there's this this underlying reality that that, um, you know, has not necessarily kept pace for Penn State in that maintaining 31 sports is is not really what happens anywhere else right now um if you look across the college athletics landscape um that's do just you, that's just not that's just you, not the model do you count ohio state in that as well are they still at that high number when it comes to the total division one sports they are they mm -hmm. are and so i mean I, I, it's more of a here are some of the outliers and right and penn right, state right. is is an outlier, right? I mean, it's, it is, it is rare to see that at this point. And so there's just some, there's some questions. I mean, it, it, look like none of this is news to anybody, but there are going to be very, very difficult decisions that need to be made for the next athletic director at Penn yeah. state as to what to prioritize, right? Like, can you continue to feed all of these mouths to, to make the student athlete experience as broad and as fulfilling as you possibly can. I mean, we're talking about 800 plus student athletes at Penn State. Yeah. Um, that's that's sizable. And What's, that is a very, very difficult balancing act to pull off. So I think that so this is where this is where I get a little bit fuzzy. 
And, mm -hmm. I, you know, I can conceptually get through some of this stuff, but the answer is because money, right? Mm -hmm. what, are, what are the driving forces that are eliminating sports? Like, what are the nuts and bolts of it that it, that is hard for a university to maintain as many athletic institutions as they have, you know, all the way down to uh, fencing, track and field, all of those things? What is, it, what is it that's functionally hard when it comes to the budget and, and all of those things? Yeah, I mean, it's it's money. It's money a couple of steps removed, right? So, mm -hmm. yes, it's money in terms of what it costs to uh, maintain facilities, right? Like, if you have 31 sports, that is a ton of facilities that you need to right. keep up and invest in and grow and build, new, renovate, what have you. Like, that's, that's big in itself. Uh, on top of that, there are all of the things that are necessary to, to be competitive in all of those sports, right? Like what's the point of putting money, like any money into a sport, if you don't want to, or feel as though you can be competitive. Um, that's like that. And that's kind of where this is at right now for Penn state in, in what it determines is, Hey, if, if the belt is tight for everyone for 31 sports, Maybe it would be a little looser with 26, right? Maybe it right. would be a little looser, more loose, very loose with 21. Um, but but like people are sensitive to that. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not insensitive to that. It it is you're talking about people's lives and uh, you know decisions that that people make um, through their careers, right? Their their um, their academic careers in terms of coming to Penn state to, to play a certain sport that, you know, might not be around by the time that they conclude. So like it's, right. it is this, these are challenging topics. These are very, very challenging things for people to handle. Um, but they're necessary. They're necessary conversations to have, uh, as Penn state moves forward. What would you say then kind of pulling back from that? What would you say going back to Sandy Barber is, is I hate the word legacy, but how would you view her tenure as Penn State's athletic director, given what she stepped into and the situation yeah. she stepped into, and then where we are now in the landscape as things are continuing to spin in multiple directions when it comes to college football, especially, but college basketball and college sports. Yeah, I so I, I mean I said this on Wednesday, and I, I feel the same way now, and I'm I'm happy to keep saying it is that her place in terms of how she is perceived within Penn state, that athletic department is that she is very well respected. She is, uh, she cares deeply about that model of college athletics. Like she mm -hmm. believes to her core in the notion of, and like, not just, not just, um, you know, in terms of how it works for Penn state, but like culturally, that there is a value to providing that experience to as many students in college as you possibly can, right? We're not talking about 45,000, obviously, for Penn State's student population, right? But if, if, if you can make and have this broad, fulfilling experience, student-athlete experience for 800-plus student-athletes, 900 student-athletes, that's significant. That's a significant impact on the university, on the face of the university, um, and and on their lives, like and and their futures. And so, I, I mean, I I don't think that anyone doubts or would call into question Sandy Barber's commitment to that and her ability to kind of keep this going at Penn State for as long as it has, with this notion of right, like people talk about success with honor. Uh, she she has done everything within her power to maintain that aura and that atmosphere yeah. of what Penn state athletics is, was, and I think what a lot of people still want it to be. Right. Um, you know, and so that's, that's kind of how I perceive her, uh, at this point. So it's kind of interesting. I, looking up a little bit about Sandy Barber and, and, and the, the system and the institutional system of amateur athleticism worked for her as somebody who was a field hockey player when she was in college, then got into uh, media business and then became an athletic director and, and kind of like the system worked for her. So yeah. is, is the next, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but 
does Penn State need to think outside the boxes to find the next athletic director, somebody who is not, I don't want to, I don't, this always sounds bad, but he's not from the system, is not from the athletic, you know, I was a player, I was a coach, yeah. all of those things yeah. to find somebody who can navigate a more professionalized landscape in sports, which is clearly the way we're going with the two money earners in college, in college athletics. I mean, these are the existential questions that exist in college athletics right now. I mean, they, yeah. like, let's let's strip it away. Is what do you want to be as an athletic department? Is is that model um, not not just practical, but like, is it possible to continue to maintain that and still achieve the highest levels of success that you want in? your biggest money-making sports, which let, let's be honest again, two sports make money three at Penn state with ice hockey. But yep. in terms of the budget, in terms of the revenue producing sports, it, it's, it's two, it's men's basketball and it's football yeah. and football obviously dwarfs basketball. So yep. especially know, like at Penn state, how, especially at Penn state. And so how that, how that dynamic plays itself out. Uh, I, I mean, they are incredibly difficult questions but also, are you going to have a choice, right? Like, I mean, yeah. if, if, if you're Penn State and you're looking at this as, hey, maybe, maybe you know, uh, these are things that we hold dear or that we hold, you know, very valuable to be able to maintain this model and we want to do it for as long as we possibly can. Are you going to have that choice in five years if you're not part of, the conversation and relevant on the national stage in the most prominent sports. I don't know. Right. Like, I, right. I, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know if Penn state can afford to be, to not make advances in football. Yep. Like bottom line is, is can Penn state afford to either barely keep pace or fall more behind than it already is in some of the areas um, now when you say we're talking about like comparatively speaking, right. right? Infrastructurally, how, how, how the football program operates. I mean, f forget wins and losses. Like I know that that's what everybody fixates on and that's important, yeah. but just compare apples to apples. Like what, what does Penn state football as a, an organization, like call it a business as a business, what does Penn state football look like compared to Alabama? Yep. What does it look like compared to Clemson? What does it look like compared to Texas A&M? And how do those programs operate um, in the new landscape of NIL? Yeah. Right? Like transfers and and, and all of those different things that have to, to function within the, the constraints of a university, right? Because that's yeah. still what we're talking about. Is Can I ask you that? Umbrella. This is what yeah. I want to ask you about. Um, when you say Penn State and you say, how does Penn State operate? Yeah. Is sports value valuable enough to the university as a marketing tool and as a way to get the name of Penn State out there to the university at large that the university has to prioritize football, especially? Or is it more of how it's looked at traditionally? And I think over the last couple of years, we've seen this kind of come to a loggerhead of this is a university and we have a football team or in a lot of places the you know, they call it the front porch of the university and all those things. How valuable is that to the the actual academic institution to maintain a high standard there i i think that there is an active ongoing debate about that <laughs> i got all the good questions today i am on there, fire it's because i slept there in a are bit. there are people arguing vehemently on both sides of that aisle and i don't know the right answer necessarily uh, I mean, and certainly I think that if you look at Penn State historically and what the football program has meant to that university, uh, it, it has been a an extremely vital, important ingredient. Um, is it currently outsized? Is there a potential for it to become outsized in terms of its influence on the rest of the university? I, those are questions that have to be answered and have to be talked about. Um, I, I mean, me personally, like, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that I think that Penn State football makes sense in in the context of Penn State University. Um, but certainly you can understand 
some of the perspectives that would differ from that. And, and that's not just, it's not limited to Penn State, right? Like there, there's a ton of universities who are having this very, very same question right now in, in terms of what, what is this monster becoming? What, what do you right. want it to be? Right. Um, and right now, I mean, I, I don't think that there's any question that we're going to see in the next three to five years. And we, we've already seen it, right? Like the first yeah. domino has already fallen. We're, we're, it's just going to be massively different. It's, yeah. it's going to be fundamentally different uh, how these things work. And I think there's a there's an important conversation on the other side that this show does not cover when it comes to the cost of tuition and it comes to sure. the cost of, on on a generation of individuals that is is the academic model tenable for society. And there is absolutely no change in that whatsoever from any sort of real place I can see. But I know that it is a serious question that a lot of people have when it comes to the ability for people to go to school. And yep. and if that model changes, then I think everything is, is it changes in terms of what this conversation is about. And that is as far as I am legally allowed to uh, tiptoe over that line. So that's Sean Clifford. Sean Clifford. Running back. Oh, quick flash Chris Godwin to make everyone happy. Here we go. Gosh, the buffer is terrible. Uh, so Chris Godwin signs a three-year, $60 million deal with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on the first day of free agency. Also coincides with Tom Brady coming back to the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So a good move for Chris Godwin. I love this for him for a couple of reasons. Um, I said this about, I said this earlier this offseason when talking about Jaquan Brisker. There's only been one player that I feel like I've had to make stump speeches for in the NFL draft process when it comes to a Penn State football player. I don't do that. I did not do that for Saquon Barkley. In fact, I was on the other side of the aisle in terms of eh, the hype's a little crazy. Chris Godwin was a first round talent that went in the third round. I feel the same way about Jaquan Brisker and we see that here uh, with a three-year, $60 million deal to keep him with the greatest quarterback of all time and go after another Super Bowl championship. Uh, any thoughts on this particular topic, Nate? Yeah, I mean, good for him. He's obviously a, a well-liked and deserving player. I'm curious to see, you know, look, like anybody that goes through an ACL, yeah, <clears throat> it's... it's uh, <laughs> it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge. And, and just to get back to normal. So, um, you know, uh, Saquon Barkley is probably not still right. Quite right. Uh, he, he hasn't had the help that he's needed, but yeah, um, I, I would Chris say, Godwin, it's, go ahead, go ahead. Well, no, I just, I mean, I, you know, it's just like, what's, what's the timeline? What's the realistic timeline? I mean, yeah. it, it's great for him to get this guaranteed money. Um, He's, and it shows the commitment, obviously, that Tampa Bay has in him. Yeah. Right? The the belief that he will be back and get back to, to full strength uh, to be relevant really probably next season. Yep. So we'll see. So he is a, he is a free agent acquisition for the playoffs. He, he tore uh -huh. his ACL, I think, in week 16 or 17 last season. So 12, I always say, you can come back in nine if you want. Sure. But 12 months is when you start looking and acting like – a football player again. Um, and, and like for a normal human being, if they were to come back in nine months, you wouldn't notice a difference. But for guys like Chris Godwin or Saquon Barkley, or do you remember when, when um, uh, Adrian Peterson came back in the same season? Yeah. Those are uh, medical miracles in my opinion, but they are not yeah. functional when it comes to, to football. So Chris Godwin is coming back for the playoffs. That's entirely, that's entirely the case here. And also, and I think this is a really good move for him. Uh, sorry, make your point, And then I'll make this, this last one on his contract. Well, no, I was just, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, coming back for the playoffs is not coming back for the, like the preseason, yep. right? Like the intensity and the level of play is like a hundred percent different. Yep. So like it makes it that that hurdle for him is is even higher in the sense that he's going to come back to an environment that is it's going to be that much more difficult to perform at his absolute best. Yeah. So but if he can come back, if he was playing by October or November and he can yep. work his way in and then he's ready to go and, and is a reasonable threat uh, when it comes to January during playoff season. That's the other thing with Tom Brady coming back. It's it's pretty much a guarantee. You look at that you look at that roster and that conference and how bad that conference is unless 
you know, Deshaun Watson goes to the Panthers. Like, it, it's guaranteed. Tom Brady's the quarterback, and Gronk is going to come back. They're going to bring back these pieces. The other thing about his contract that I think is great on both sides, truthfully, is that this is actually a even shorter-term deal than three three years. It, it's essentially a two-year extension with a dead year, um, not really any sort of money in the third year. It's an optional year. Uh, it's But they can extend him to that if they want to. So he's playing with Tom Brady, and then he gets to do whatever he wants again. So from yeah. his uh, 28 years old, in the prime of his career, he's going to get another contract, 28, 29, somewhere in there. So just a really smart deal from Chris Godwin's side and from the Bucks. I like how this worked for both sides. Last thing, and we got to be... I, I always squeeze the basketball to the end because we've got to get to our mailbag questions, but Sam Sessoms enters the transfer portal. Miles Dredd yep. is still mulling the decision from what I understand. So how does Sam Sessoms' decision impact Micah Shrewsbury? And what we talked about on the live show on Monday of they're going to be really young next year and they kind of need some veterans. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, look, it means that they need to go to the portal again, right? Yeah. Uh, they, we were already talking about there being one available scholarship for next year. Uh, now it's two. And could be three, could be four. So I, I certainly Micah Shrewsbury does not want to build his program that way. That's not That's not something that they want to rely on. But in terms of adding older pieces who might be able to fill in and fill a need, you know, they know that they have to do that. And I think that they are eager to be able to do that in a constructive way. So, you know, Sam um, has had a tough situation. I, I mean, I, I can't even begin to give it the justification that it deserves in terms of his life. He, he has been through and seen and had to deal with things that m most of us cannot fathom. Um, and some of that occurred while he was at Penn state. And so, you know, for him to probably want a fresh start, um, you know, personally, but then also, um, you know, in the basketball perspective, you know, he probably doesn't want to come off the bench, right? His, his, his role at Penn state shifted, uh, and evolved this year. He was getting just about the same minutes, but it, it was it was different. It was different. And so how he fits into Michael Shrewsbury's system, all of those different factors, you know, kind of create this environment and this atmosphere where it probably makes sense for both sides. Yeah. Um, and I understand for Penn State, like for Penn State fans who uh, either casually just saw the end of the season and saw what he was doing in the Big Ten tournament, yeah. um, or even bigger Penn State fans who, who thought that he had potential as a scorer. He was a lightning rod for them yep. off the bench. So um, that part, it, it will be a loss. That part, too, coming in as the sixth man, I thought he was very valuable in that role. Uh, is that a, yeah. a double blow because you don't have – do you have that guy now? And, and can you count on something like that next season from a veteran – it feels like you not only are you replacing the player, but also that six man role, which maybe I'm making more of that than it is. Yeah, I mean, but but that could very easily be uh, any of the freshmen right. um, that are coming in that they're, they're like they have a guard heavy uh, recruiting class that's coming in. There's going to be opportunity. You don't want, and what Michael Shrewsbury said is, you don't want to put so much stress and so much pressure on that true freshman class to have to come in and immediately perform. You don't want those guys to have to carry 30, 35 minutes a game. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I don't think that they are, are that right. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're not, they're not 35 minutes as true freshman kind of guys. Um, and so if you can bring them along and develop them at a natural rate, then you position yourself to, to, you know, have a, ha certainly have a strong 23, 24, but just, just finding pieces that fit right now for this coming season through the transfer portal, you can you can build and have a roster that can still compete next season, right? Uh, Jalen Pickett is strong. Seth Lundy is strong. Dalian Johnson came along this year, and I think that they really have high hopes for yeah. what his potential can be. So that they, they that made a concerted right effort there, to get him. They made a concerted effort yeah. to get him time and minutes and reps at the second half of the season. Uh, is that yep. is that going to soften the blow in some ways of him? Because this is this is one problem I've always had when it comes to basketball. Is like you got to know your role. And John Harrow was yep. a rebound toughness guy, and then you saw him in yeah. his. 
I know sixth year, but like his game developed and he became a scoring option for the Nittany Lions if they threw the ball down at a low post. And I think we tend to look at players, especially early in their career, as you do one thing. You're out there for one thing. And I always felt like there's self-limiting beliefs in that. So when it comes to Dallian Johnson, is there more to give there? And what do you think that that is when his game can open up a little more in another season with Mike Shrewsbury? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly I think his shooting can improve. I think he's got a nice shot, and I think that he his percentages can be higher. He fell off a little bit at the end of the season. You don't know if that's, you know, fatigue. This was really his first season playing. He didn't play last year. So so that could certainly be a factor. Um, but no, I mean, it's 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 a delicate balance because you're trying to you're trying to accentuate the strengths i mean obviously this sounds so stupid but like accentuate the, the strengths and minimize the weaknesses and so you don't want you don't want to get into a situation where you're asking everyone to be everything because when you do that leads to problems that that leads uh to to, to issues and guys overexerting themselves uh in terms of what they're capable of so no, I mean it's it's Dying's gonna be an interesting guy to watch next year. Yeah. Just because he showed, he demonstrated, hey, this is this is um, you know, these are some of the things that he can do. Can he be more of a scorer, more of a a driving threat? Probably, honestly. Yeah. Um, and then defensively, I mean, I think that he he definitely has room to grow defensively. Um, but the potential is there, and I think that obviously Penn State has some some pretty high hopes for what he can be. Yeah, because as an athlete, really quick, really fluid. I really liked watching him move on the court. And when you see guys like that, I guess it just comes to the the mind of, it, in basketball especially, there's this replacement thing. Because if you're not out of the box AAU first round yeah. guy, then we look at you as kind of like, oh, well, this is what you are. Instead of, I think especially in other sports, you see more consistent eyes on development from fans especially in basketball it's always who's the next scorer where are you getting those points from because it's not going to be any of these guys because look at what their role was last year so it's just an interesting way to look at that any last things on basketball i want to make sure i give you as much time as possible uh before we move on to our questions today uh no i mean i i just think i just think that that very clearly this is the beginning of the portal phase yeah uh, for Penn State basketball, right? The next, the next four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks are going to be are going to be heavy and big for Penn State to kind of figure out how it wants to manage its roster. But the counter to that is, I don't think they want it to go much longer than that. Last year, when Michael Shrewsbury arrived, he had to spend so much of his time. Their staff had to spend so much of their time dealing with the are they staying, are they going of right. the current roster. Um, you know, decisions that weren't made until April, May, June, like, I think they want that to be settled. I think th- they want those decisions in or out to, to happen within the, the next, like I said, two months at most, probably, um, so that they can actually have a team and actually move forward as a team in terms of the development stuff that they want to have happen before next season gets started. I know I've asked you this before in a different way, but... When do we see the actual Micah Shrewsbury Penn State basketball team? Because as you just mentioned, kind of hit the ground running. It's a survival mode year one. And I think we're all relatively think of a positive experience from that despite a losing record. When do you see, okay, we're not just fighting for survival. Now we're doing things we want to do. What's that timeline, uh, uh, do you think? Knowing that it can be never because you might never get the pieces you want. Yeah. Um. I don't think this coming year, mm-hmm. I think maybe in two years, realistically in three years, nobody right. ever wants to hear that. Like it's like, and I get it. Yeah. Um, James Franklin talked about it at the beginning of his Penn state tenure, which was, you know, there, it, you used to have a model where coaches had four or five years when taking over a program yep. to, to really get it where it needs to be because it's not free agency. And, and yes, the transfer portal changes that a little bit. Um, but, but if, if you want to build again, I mean, he's, he's Shrewsbury talks about it all the time. He's using Purdue as a model. He's yeah. using Michigan state as a model. These are college basketball programs that rely heavily on recruiting typical high school prospects. They want to bring yeah. those guys in. They want to season them, let them marinate and, 
and develop them so that when they're juniors and seniors, they can really produce. Well, you know, look, you're talking about his first real recruiting, actually his first recruiting class period, Yeah, not getting to Penn State until June of this year. So June of this year, they get a year in. The next year, they're sophomores. You know, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's just about what that timeline is for their development. This is the BWI Daily Edition, about halfway through the show. I'm your host, Thomas Frank Carr, Nate Bauer, senior editor, talking about everything from Sandy Barber's retirement to Sam Sessoms in the portal. And now you get your voice heard, because of the Here BWI Mailbag Edition, with Nate and T. Frank. For all those listening on the podcast version, there's a very nice title graphic that I made. That's uh, mm. saying all of those things I just said, but I got to say it out loud because we do have people that listen and don't just watch, which I, I mean, I love our podcast audience, but that's where you go for the replay. You want to watch this beautiful television show on YouTube first, which by the way, great time to say subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button because we're in, we're, we're on the verge of spring football and you want to make sure you're the first to know. Also, I want to get to 7,000 followers on the channel. We're not that far away. If you have friends that like Penn State football, this is where you get the, this is the high octane. It, so everyone has the 87 at the pump, right? I know bringing up gas prices, I'm going politics twice in one show. But Ugh. my point is this is 93. This, sure. this show is high octane, premium information we give you the good stuff you need to know not the low-hanging fruit that's just there that everyone does inside information this is the stuff sign up for a dollar blueweightillustrated.com and subscribe here on the youtube channel all right stuff is done. I, I i somebody saw me at sesame street live over the yeah. weekend and told me that they watched the show yes that is the cultural was, impact we want to have at a yeah. random children's yeah. uh, play at Eisenhower, I'm assuming? No, no. Bryce Jordan Center. Only, only the, the full experience for the little children. But uh, <laughs> no, dads are watching. Yes. So tell your other dad friends, we're out here. We're here for you. Yes. We it's wanna, the, we want to talk about this. It's the bro code. Don't leave your bros on the outside. Okay, let's get to the questions. Uh, are quickly becoming one of our best names in uh, the BWI message board community is Losi's mustache. And he also has great questions. So another question headed into spring ball. What happened with Keaton Ellison, Marquise Wilson? 2020 happened, but their freshman year, they look like dynamic duo cornerback, and then they're just ghosts. I think this is a fair point. Do you think Ellis can contribute at safety, or is it already being overshadowed by Jalen Reed? Do you think Wilson can contribute at receiver or corner? And what do you think the flip-flopping of the position has done for his growth? So I think it's, it's important to say that Keaton Ellis flashed some potential, but there was a reason he was moved to safety, if you go back to that Minnesota game. Um, yeah. And then and Marquise Wilson, that's the one that's very intriguing to me because I thought he had great potential at corner with ball skills and, and, and dynamic playmaking ability. And then I agree. He just kind of disappeared. So what do you think is in store for those guys this season? It's a, it's a great question. I actually just went to the roster to look about Marquise because he did like towards the end of last season, he got time at defensive back again. And so, you know, kind of what I was led to believe and what I understood to be true was expecting him to, step into receiver and just immediately get it was probably too much of an ask, right? Like making that transition, you're trying to learn the position yeah. and he's learning it from Jahan Dotson, which is great for him. That, but like, I, are, I saw him as a slot receiver is the thing because there's nobody behind Parker Washington and he has slot receiver skills. So he's learning from yeah. Parker and I know he's learning to play receiver from Jahan, but like that to me, that was the need was we don't have a, no, we don't, we don't have another slot. Yeah. Well, and so and so that's the question right now is he's listed as an athlete for Penn State on on the on the roster. So, yeah. you know, what what they do with him and how they decide to go. I mean, certainly I think that if they if they move him back to corner and I mean certainly like maybe maybe it was just an experiment, but that that was not kind of the impression that I was under. I I I thought that that was a move that he was embracing and mm. they were giving him the time to 
develop into that role so that this year, next year, he he could contribute. He could be a factor yep. uh, at that receiver spot. But but we're gonna have to see. I mean, that's the, we're gonna have to watch that. Um, certainly, you know, next week with the start of spring practice. Um, and then Keaton, Keaton, like to me, Keaton is is very interesting because I think I mean nobody's talking about him, but he's gonna yep. play. Like yes, yeah. he's, 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 he's gonna played, get a ton of reps. He played at the end of last season a good bit too. Like he was Correct. in the game. He was he sort of replaced Jonathan Sutherland as the third safety that came on the field. But injuries yep. have been a huge part of his story, especially last season. I think that was the the unfortunate thing for him is I. I was looking over the snap counts, so I went back. I, I did this this whole thing yesterday on Manny Diaz and the difference between his defensive scheme and um, Brent Pry. And I was just looking at snap counts, and I was looking at the number of players that used to play for the Penn State defense and the mm-hmm. number of players that played last season. And it is drastically different. It is so very different. And in in one situation, you know, Tig Brown played almost all the snaps, but it's because there's no depth anymore. You know, there's no yep. players, and, and, you know, maybe that is something of an indictment on Enzo Jennings and Tyler Rudolph, who are no longer in the program, but yep. also Keaton Ellis was hurt, so, like, they're playing these guys the entire game. When it comes to Keaton, uh, when it comes to Marquise Wilson, does he want to move back to corner? Because here, you got Kalen King, who seems like he's the presumed starter at one position. You got Joey Porter Jr., presumed starter at the other. Johnny Dixon, as a guy who's going to rotate in. And I think they'll play more corners this year. He's going to play. And then after that, like, do you play four corners? Penn State has not really ever played four. They've played three. I don't know if they've ever played four. So do, do you want to stick at receiver if you're Marquise? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're looking at the two positions, which one has the bigger opportunity? Yeah. Uh, to, to me, it's receiver, right? I mean, I think that we have expectations for two guys right now but in terms of a third for penn state there's yeah. a lot of unknowns there's there's people vying for the opportunity obviously but uh in terms of you know picking today like i mean you just reeled off three really kind of co-starters at corner are, are there three co-starters at receiver probably not so you know that it's gonna be interesting for sure hey, so the the receiver position and i'll go back to just kind of make my same point again is Parker Washington coming off the field at all next season because it's not like it's not like Marquise Wilson has to play in the slot uh, you know he played boundary corner so he's got he's taller than I thought like he's 5'11 he is taller than I expected when I saw him in person so that in a, in itself makes him a better candidate but he is shifty and he's thin so, like, he could be a true slot receiver. The only other one on the roster that I think has those skills is Liam Clifford. And Liam is, let me look at here, 6'2", I want to say. He's not your typical slot receiver body. So, redshirt freshman, 6'1", 200 pounds. So, I, I'd say he's a he's a big slot. But other than that, Amari Evans, who I'm assuming is going to redshirt, is the only other guy that I think is, is really has that sort of skill set when it comes to route running, athleticism to play on the interior. So... I don't know. It's an interesting question with Marquise because I, I don't know if there's a path for him to play in the n- amount of time that he has with guys that are clearly playing in front of him and the number of years he has left on the roster. So, you know, I, it's, it's, it is going to be one that is where he lines up, on what side of the ball he lines up, what position, like, on the depth chart he is. He might, do you think he's a guy that, that could hit the transfer portal if things don't go his way this spring? Is that a guy that might do that? No idea. Wouldn't care to guess. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah. No clue. Uh, this one's from Frank Buffone. F Buff. Uh, 789 on Twitter. The NFL draft coming up. Several players selected in the first two rounds this year. If you had to predict which players will be possibly drafted in the first two rounds next year. So who are guys that you're looking at as the talent to play in the NFL and be drafted in the first 60 picks? Um, great question. I don't, I mean, Nick Singleton's not eligible. Yep. So like, is there, is there, I mean, look, like this is really what we're talking about because 
the first two rounds of the NFL draft are really hard to get into. Yep. And so not only is it really hard to get into nationally, but you've got to be the right age. You've got to be the right, you know, progress in dimensions. Yep. You got to be all of it. Right. So like if we're, if we're looking at Penn state's roster, who are the juniors and seniors that fit that bill? Uh, I think it's a pretty limited group. Yeah. And I would say even better, who are the red shirt sophomores? Who are the guys that have, you know, three years or true juniors that have produced that can go to the NFL. That I think is important too, because the NFL wants you under contract during your peak physical prime. So a guy I was going to, I was going to bring up is Mitchell Tinsley, but he's in his fifth year, I think now. So next off season, we've even heard this about Jaquan Brisker. I I, I did a, a, a podcast last Friday with a PFF guy, Doug Kide. And I said, what's, holding Brisker back in the draft process. And one of the things he brought up is he's an older prospect. And I was like, I, okay. Yep. I mean, it, it, that, but that again, that's what we're talking about. If you've got to tick all the boxes of, you've got to have the length, the size, the dimensions for your position, the production and the physical skills. So let's bring up Parker Washington. He's a sophomore, going to be a true junior next year. 5'10", 207. Does he have the 40 time to be a Rondale Moore? Because that's what he's got to be. He's got to be a version of that, of an athletic slot receiver with great skill. Because slot receivers don't go in the first round unless you have, like, explosive potential. Uh, who's another guy? I think the real one, and let's let's point out the one that's obvious, would be Joey Porter Jr. Yeah. That's yep. the guy that can go in the first round if he has a good season. Uh, Theo Johnson? Yeah, I mean, I you know, look, like I, I just haven't, I haven't seen, and, and I mean, going back to Tinsley for just a second, but like, uh, he he's not taking advantage of a bonus year if he's like a fourth round guy currently, right? Right. right. So if he's if he's not like, I I don't think that this is. I mean, and maybe maybe I'm off on this, but like, I don't think that you see a ton of guys go from seventh round or undrafted free agent into first or second round pick in the oh, span yeah. of a year. Yeah. Tinsley's very right? good. He's gonna be he's gonna be the guy that the draft process does love because he's six foot one. He's explosive. Yep. I it, as long as the Penn State offense isn't bad next season, I think he's gonna blow up. I have high expectations for what he can do in Penn State. But not first or second round. Maybe second. I could see maybe second. Um because and again, it depends on his 40 time. It depends on his arm length. It depends on all these things that Jahan yeah. Dotson worked his way from an athletic perspective and a, and a production perspective from a third or fourth round guy, which you and I talked about. Like, that's what I saw him yeah. as last year. Now he's yeah. a second round pick in my mind because yeah. he didn't meet some of the thresholds as a first rounder. Does a team not care because they see the production? They see good enough speed and he can fit in our offense in this situation? I Believe that's true. He could go in the first round to one of those high octane offenses, like if Green Bay wanted to finally wanted to draft another receiver, he could go yep. there. I won't say Buffalo Bills because I know that that will be a a a pander to my fandom. So Kansas City is another great spot, possibly if they value that in their offense that already checks superstar receiver, superstar tight end, superstar quarterback. Offensive line is set. Okay, let's draft a slot receiver. That's yep. that's his that's his destination. But that's kind of what we're parsing through when it comes to being one of those two first rounds. Um, none of the running backs, I would not say, are are first round picks. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I just I don't I don't I don't really see. It. I mean, even with Joey Porter Jr., like I, I just I mean, for, like expand it to the first four rounds, and then I got lots. Like, yep, sure. Yep, you know, but uh, top two rounds seems unlikely to me. Let's go over to Poncho five seventy. Who are your picks for the biggest surprise players on offense and defense this spring? Hmm. Who are yours? Can I? Can you go first? Hmm. So I'm gonna. So I'll flash this one up here, and then I'm gonna put up this particular one because they're they're connected. Why? What recruits over the last few years are you hoping for a breakout year, and why? Who are you really rooting for, and why? So. I'll say this for Nate. We are not fans. We do not root for anything in particular. I'm rooting to be right 
when it comes to my evaluation of football players. So in that light, I have talked a lot about Keziah Holmes. I think he's got the talent to do it. I think he is a really talented football player. Is he going to get the opportunity to, and is he going to take advantage of said opportunity? It is a crowded backfield, but he has it within him, I think, to keep those talented freshmen at bay or at least get himself into the conversation at a very crowded position. That is, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I want to be right because I've talked about him since last offseason when he redshirted. So that'd be, that'd be one of my guys. What about you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm going to, I'm just going to absorb the arrows uh, for saying this, but you know, look like there's lots of nice guys and good guys in the Penn state football program. I, I, I think professionally it would be a relief for me if Sean Clifford had a good year. <laughs> Yep. Right. Like, I mean, yep. we just, it's just, it's such a dead horse at this point that of, <laughs> yep. of, of all the griping and, and like warranted griping. Right. I mean, people, I, I get the frustration of fans. I, I get the whole thing. Like, it's just, it's just a lot. And so, you know, I, I think that it would be an easier topic to digest and, and for him yeah, like hopefully for him, he has a good year. Hopefully for Penn yeah. State, he has a good year, right? Because I mean, yeah. it's, those are the things that um, if they don't happen, uh, unpleasantness ensues. Yep, for for everybody, for, for everyone, everyone involved. Because I mean, my wife is impacted by this. <laughs> she has to be around me. Uh, we should that is that should be the pitch when you're the quarterback and probably it is like everyone's life is impacted when you're the quarterback and, and your your level of success is, is is tied to the the beat writer's wife her life is impacted my I would children agree. no pressure no pressure <laughs> yeah I've been called a hater several times this offseason uh, by people who love Sean Clifford and again we talked about it last season of like that growth and development of being able to master yourself, that's that's something that, uh, you know, I think we're all rooting for from a story perspective. Of sure. uh, And, and he, I think he mentioned it himself last season, and we talked about it. Um, I want to find... Okay, so Beaverman72, this is a perfect transition and segue into Here this. Here we go. Is yeah. Clifford mentally broken, or can he have a successful season in his sixth year? Is he capable of handling blitzes? Uh, so Nate and I actually did some research on this to get a more factual answer to what happened to Sean Clifford last season. Where would you like to start? Do you want to lead off or do you want me to take it? Um, I'll, I'll lead and then you can, you can bring us home. Okay. Um, I, I don't, I don't think he's mentally broken. I think he was hurt last year. Uh, it, right. Like I, I, again, he had good games, some good games in the first half of the season before he got hurt. He actually had some after he got hurt, right? The, the Michigan game wasn't that bad. Uh, and the Ohio State game was, uh, I think, PFF-wise, might have been his highest-graded game of the season. Michigan State. So, yeah. Okay, Michigan State. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, he, I mean, uh, he can play, right? Like, I, 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 He will be okay. He's still in it. Uh, I, I don't think that it is necessarily, right, like – put them on an ice flow and send them out to sea. Like that's, that's not the situation that I think that Sean Clifford is under. Yeah. I think, I, I think, and this is, this is something that hopefully you will address here. His ability to pick up the blitz and mm-hmm. perform under the blitz could be remedied significantly by improved performances from his tight ends running backs and offensive line. Yep. If those things happen, right? Like if, if you're not, and this is like, and again, I mean, we, we go down this path, but all of these things impact each other. If Penn state can run the ball, yep. he might not have so many blitzes that he has to handle. Like yep. all of those things factor in. And so Penn state's, his performance under those conditions will improve dramatically if those conditions aren't the same as they were last season. Yep. Yeah. 
So I'm pulling this up because you you bring up a great point that I wanted to kind of bring home. Sean Clifford, uh, in the first five weeks of the season, this is what we were, we were talking about because you mentioned after he was hurt, his play suffered. And at first, I would say at first, that was not the case because you and I had this conversation maybe after the Illinois game or somewhere in there. Um, no, no, no. It was it was after the Ohio State game because he played well in that particular game. But here are the the season numbers when it comes to Sean Clifford under pressure. First off, fifty dropbacks under pressure in the first five games of the season up until up until that hit in uh, the Iowa game. So fifty three pressures. His PFF grade and passing grade is a fifty. Now that is pretty low amongst starters in the Big Ten. That is tenth. That is not sinking your season. Most importantly, he had one turnover-worthy throw in that span. So 1.8%, about 2% of his throws were dangerous in the first five games of the season. Penn State was 5-0. and That's the formula for success. Turnovers and explosive plays. So if we look then at how he performed under pressure, four touchdowns, two interceptions, all that... That'll make sense, right? He threw one bad one where he was just heaving it up. It didn't really make any difference to the win or loss of the game. It was Indiana, I want to say. It was Villanova, uh, one of the two. So it was a night game. It was either it was either the it was either the Indiana game or it was the uh, Auburn game. Either way, kind of a nothing throw where it's Auburn. You, yeah, and then he had one bad one against Indiana. So I think that's how it worked out. So those are the two interceptions. So if we fast forward till after the injury, and this is the calculus that I don't, I can't do, is what does an injury do to your performance in general? How does that affect your mental process? We talk about the physical process all the time. Here's a great example. Baker Mayfield, right now, he played with a torn, non-throwing shoulder last, off, last season. And he was awful. Not just from a physical standpoint, from a mental standpoint. And I think that's a very fair comparison in their personalities and in, in, and not saying that, you know, I think they're both fiery competitors that have a problem controlling their emotions at times. I think that's a fair comparison. Not any of the off-field stuff or any of that because Sean is a model citizen. Yeah. So here's the second half of the season. Not only was he under pressure more than double the first half of the season, Going back to they cannot run the ball. The only thing they're doing is throwing the ball. Short passes with Sean Clifford. 111 dropbacks under pressure, the most in the Big Ten. His passing grade is a 26. This is the low, the lowest in the Big Ten. Uh -oh. That is the lowest in the country. Like it's one, one of the lowest among starters in the country. He threw eight turnover-worthy plays that resulted in four interceptions. Again, this goes back to does it match up to the tape? Yes. He was under pressure actively hurting the team. And when you when you when you throw on top of the fact that he wasn't running as much and he was throwing the ball away more, it's not just that you're throwing the ball to the other team, you're actively doing less of the things that are a part of your profile. So He's not mentally broken. It's the same problem he's had. It was just accentuated by the situation, which is, Nate, I think the 38th time that you and I have said that this offseason. Yeah, I, don't know. I, I mean, but look, like, maybe that's why people want to see anything new. Yes. Right? Like, just because you've seen this show before. And so if he finds himself hurt again... And you know that those are the circumstances, and maybe, and maybe that's the the, the biggest argument to make, right? Is is if you're going to criticize James Franklin of anything, it's all right. You know what the what happens. You know what happens if Sean Clifford has to play hurt. This is the data. Here it is. It can't get worse, right? Like it, it cannot be worse than a 26 in that yep. category. Yes. Uh, and so it, and it actually so is mathematically know? hard to get worse. <laughs> right. So like so so rather than feeling like you have to tough it out with yeah. the guy who's been through it, maybe you have to turn somewhere else. Maybe yes. you have to go to Christian Bayou. Maybe it's Drew Aller. Maybe it's Bo Prabula. I don't know. But it, it it does seem at this point that there is enough data to say, hey, this guy needs to be healthy and this guy needs to be 
not under pressure constantly. Because if those two things aren't there, you're in trouble. It's not going to go well. I think a lot of I think a lot of fans think about James Franklin in an incorrect way because they throw the ball all the time. They don't have their hand in the dirt. They don't have a fullback. They think of him as this aggressive, new-aged coach. And I just yep. think that that's fundamentally wrong because it's outside of the fourth down decisions, which I think is a credit to him as an intellectual human being that sees the information yep. saying, hey, X, Y, and Z. And he's learned through that process of how to judiciously apply that to his particular team, but he's aware of the information. He's not turning a blind eye to it and being myopic. On the other hand, they throw a lot of bubble screens. That is not a valuable pass. They do a lot of things like not starting a, a, a freshman quarterback, keeping things very traditional. He's an old school coach that I think when you look at some of these things is, is more conservative all the way to the defensive side of the ball and some of the things I wrote about of like Brent Pry runs a lot of cover three. It's a very safe thing to run. It is a very yep. keep your you're not running a lot of risky coverages and it goes back again to, you know, limiting what his core beliefs are, limiting explosive plays, getting them yourself, getting turnovers, playing some of those things de-emphasize the turnover part because you want to limit explosive plays. So anyway, that's a very long, convoluted conversation that we don't need to have because nobody asked about that one, and this is the mailbag show. So my questions are out of order here, so hopefully I get the right one. Okay, we just sort of talked about this, actually, Saikin. Have you analyzed play calling on third and fourth and short last season, which he thinks is pretty horrible? Have you analyzed the success or failure rate in these situations? This, Nate, is a product of our own success. This question is a product of being too smart that we get these questions that, like, the amount... Like, I am not actually a data analyst. So, no, I have not gone and I have not studied the success-failure rate of third and fourth down. Um, I would say that, anecdotally, I only had a problem with a couple of the play calls in those situations going back and watching the film. When you're in the snow against Michigan and you're... Yeah. Or Michigan State and you're running it on third and fourth and short, and you're not getting the push you think you're getting, and doing it anyway, I think you need to put players in space and make people miss, and that's what I, I would make some, some tactical arguments about that. The only other game I would say that I had a problem with their play calling on third and fourth down would be in the Michigan game, but Michigan called a good defense. So they forced Penn State into a certain situation where they had to throw the ball because if Sean Clifford threw to any other receiver, it would have been an interception. So the it's all these are these third and fourth down calls that you're talking about are all process based of they didn't make them yeah. and secondarily um they, they they you have an emotional reaction to them and it's not a positive one. So I think well, that's I that's really a part of the analyzing of it from what we do on a basic basis. Yeah, I mean we we and maybe this is a, an activity for the summer it probably is but analyzing the number like situationally what what are we talking about how how many third and seven plus were they in right right how many how many uh third and three or less yeah. were they in and you know what impact did having again being blunt having an offensive line and running backs who could not produce minimal yardage in those situations yep like because uh, we, we look at play calls and we evaluate them for their success failure rate in the moment, right? Yep. But what we don't consider is the process of elimination that takes place in the mind of an offensive coordinator saying, hey, we've done that before. It doesn't work. Yep. We've done that many times before. It doesn't work. Yep. And so all of a sudden, not, not all of a sudden, it's over the, the course of the year, is you have this process of elimination where all of a sudden your play sheet is not that big. There aren't yep. that many options yep. in terms of what you can possibly do that your players are comfortable with, that they have a marginal to reasonable success rate with. Yep. Uh, and so that like, those are the things that I just think get lost in the conversation because we're just like, Oh, well he, he failed, right? Uh, yep. Third down conversions. They, they were 78th in the country last year. That's not good. Yep. Right. So, but like, what, what are the factors that went into that? Uh, I, I think are a little bit deeper. I, I want to also bring up the second half of this 
question here on the screen. Do you think there are situations PSU could put two running backs and once to get them in the passing game? We need creative calls in one opinion. What do you think? I thought that Mike Yersich was pretty creative last season. And there's there's two roads to go down in this situation, Nate. The first is what you just said. It's not working. What we're doing isn't working. So there are two ways to react. Double down, teach it, and try to make it better. Try to get incremental development out of their, and I'm just going to say that their, their bread and butter is the inside zone. They tried to run the outside zone. They didn't give up on it like in past seasons with past offensive coordinators. They kept trying to run it all season long, but they didn't have the horses to run it. So we need to run inside zone. And they didn't have the horses to run inside zone, but they worked on it and they got incrementally better. I give them credit for not completely abandoning everything because you need to go back to something. The other thing you can do in that situation of we're going to get better at our individual thing or we're going to throw the kitchen sink at coming up with gadgets and plays to catch the defense off guard. The problem is, and as you saw in the bowl game, that works one time. So how much time are you spending in creating and then installing new plays to have them work once? You need to be good at what you need to be good at. And I thought they did a good job of balancing that, of trying to get better at the inside zone. And they had a, they had a full house backfield. They had a, a, a tight end and two running backs with a balanced formation in the backfield. They put their tight end at quarterback. They, um, uh, they did a bunch of different things I can think of. They had, they had Jahan Dotson run a, a reverse for a touchdown in one game. They did a lot of stuff. They did a lot yeah. of gadget plays. They put a tight end at tackle with a tackle eligible pass in the game. Like if you're you're it's not because the offense wasn't successful, you don't remember the things that were successful along the way. And I thought they had enough of that sprinkled in where I would have called them creative, but their base offense didn't work. Yep. That so you're not going to remember any of those things because you remember the second and four that became a third and three. He, James Franklin said that at one point, he was like, we've tried everything and, yeah. and you don't, you don't remember. It's, it's not something that sticks in your memory because you're, again, you're only thinking of success failure, but the, the two, I mean, literally the conversation last year in yeah. the spring was, oh, they're doing two running back sets. Like that's new. That's yeah. different from Kirk Draka. Yep. Mike Yurzich is bringing different things that it was very obvious in the two open spring practices that they had, you know, like the sub blue white games uh, that, that they were running different things. And that's yep. a very vanilla package, right. That you run for the blue white game, but it still was very evident that they were going to try to do different things. They just weren't good at those things. Yeah. And <laughs> they were, were good they at the good? things they needed to be good at to make those things matter. The second part of this conversation is that, uh, running back targets in the in the passing game are not valuable. You're already doing that with Parker Washington. You don't need to add more short yardage passes. You need to get more passes down the field to Mitchell Tinsley and to the tight ends. So I think from and that perspective, that's them. important. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one last thing that you brought up, and and we're way over time as always. But I wanna, I want this. The funny thing about this whole conversation, I love this particular conversation, is because. In the moment last off season, last season during a particularly bad game, um, somebody said like, well, you just got to switch the scheme. And I said, buddy, how many schemes do you think there are? They've, they, inside zone, outside zone, power, counter, trap. They did, other than trap, they did all of these like offensive run blocking systems. They run all of them. They tried trick plays they tried running the quarterback the receiver running the running back out of an inverted format they tried their pitch play that they had with Noah Kane in 2019 they did all of it the offensive line wasn't good at blocking last off se last season that's where it is now I want to apologize to uh, Tigar who had a great question we answered that already I think in our conversation about Sandy Barber at the start of the show when it comes to the AD position and the growth of there but I wanted to throw him up here on screen give him some love great commenter in the uh, in the BWI community great question here we will end with this one Nate and I don't know if this is a great place to end but it's where we're ending because it's the last one we got is Sandy Barber retiring or is Sandy Barber being retired uh, that I don't know this question at all. So this is this is this is all on you, buddy. I am going to not plead the fifth. I'm going to say 
maybe a little bit of both, right? I, I, I don't, my sense was that, uh, and, and based on prior comments that she's made, is that she, she wanted maybe to, to stick around. Like she, she, she saw more things that, that she could do at Penn state. Um, but also that she was nearing retirement age, like, this, like, uh, she's had a great career or uh, a long career. And so, you know, these things with the timing of Penn state's new president, um, you know, some of those past comments, like this is what happens, mm-hmm. right? Like a, a, a new university president picks their athletic director. Um, and so certainly maybe there, there had been an opportunity for the new president to, to, you know, I mean, certainly it doesn't seem as though there, there was that much of a chance for, for the new president to get to know uh, Sandy Barber or evaluate Sandy Barber, but right. um, for the new president to want to have that opportunity, I, I think it makes sense for everybody, right? Yeah. For Sandy Barber and for the new president of Penn State. There certainly were comments about Sandy Barber contemplating retirement before this. Before Correct. the new athletic or the new uh, president of the Uni- uh, United States, geez, the new president of the university yeah. uh, was was named. So I, I think that's well a fair before. way to look at that. Yeah, I yeah, think that's well a very before. fair way to look at that. And I got to get out of here. That was yeah. I'm now at strike three when it comes to saying things that might be politically leaning. I said the president of the United States, which is going to have a lot of great comments come on this video like i'm i'm very excited for that anyway pwi daily edition rolling out of here on a thursday we'll be back one more time on friday and then monday special coverage of penn state's start of spring practice we will not have our live show but we will be coming to you live monday night time tbd and we'll have some content for, for you from haluba lash beaver stadium wherever we are We're going to be there in person. You're going to get to see it from our perspective, Blue White Illustrated, on the scene for the start of spring practice. I'm your host, Thomas Frank Carr. We'll talk to you tomorrow.